Episode number 54, Joshua Safford talks about street storytelling and working up close with your audience. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome again to The Art of Storytelling with Children. I am Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have found your way today here because I have become a little bit, I I have become obsessed, okay? I have become obsessed with understanding how we can expose new audiences to storytelling. It's become a minor obsession of my life. Part of that obsession is expressed in the fact that I am very interested in street storytelling. And so I have gone out of my way to find people who are really good at it and to bring them on the show. And I have with me right now a storyteller who fits that bill. I called around the Renaissance Circuit and I called the different people randomly, you know, people with websites, and I said, who's a street storyteller? And I described a street storyteller. I said, somebody who works a crowd or somebody who goes from place to place, sometimes randomly, sometimes planned, and interacts with an audience that does not expect to meet a storyteller. A name came up. A name came up quite a few times. And that's Joshua Safford, who's known under a few different names, but he has a website, ravenstory.com. And I looked at his site, and I was very interested in, in his approach and what he was doing. And I really liked the sort of the variety tradition he works with. And so I'm really glad that he, he was willing to come on the show because he not only does storytelling, but he also does magic and juggling um, and math work as well. And he works in the Renaissance environment. So people coming there are expecting something sort of different. But he's working outside of a set space, like a stage or a performance venue. Which And this is a, this is a rough crowd. You know, you, you have to convince them. You have to bring them in. I'm really excited, and I really thank you for coming on. Well, I'm excited to be here, Eric. Uh, so, do you have a story to share with us tonight? Sure. Um, I think partly uh, one of the successful things that you can do in street storytelling is always picking the right story for the right person. So, I'd like to tell a fantasy story and then tell how it worked out amazingly in this situation. And the story is called The Dragon Lady. Once there's this lady who's got a son who's got a fondness for lizards. You know the sort of boy. A spear grass hunter is he, always digging around the ground looking for specimens. Well, one day he's down by the marsh, hunting lizards, and he sees, off in the distance, floating over the water, there's a pearl or an orb of some kind. Well, mother sees what the child wants, and so she does what a mother does. She reaches for the orb, but it falls down below, and she falls with it, down, 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 to the center of an oyster. Well, there is a dragon. Lady, you know the ways of raising lizards, yo? Yes, ma. My son has raised several. Hmm. I offer you the greatest Saurian raising challenge. My lover has passed away. There is no one to nurse my child. 
I would ask you to do this. I would ask you not to put the fingers in the milk that I give you, nor put your fingers in the child's eyes. You know the way a mother is. Always got her fingers in her child's eyes. How could she help it? She scratched her own eye. She's got dragon sight. Ten years hence, there she is walking around the surface world. She sees on a rooftop, there's a dragon with ten children tied in rope. There's a dragon on the roof with our children! Lady! Said the dragon swooping down and covering one eye. Do you see me? Yes, dragon, I see you. Swoop down and covered the other eye. Do you see me? No, dragon, I do not. Out came her eye, and the dragon fly high into the sky, and the lady, she sees dragons no more. But she warns folk a dragon all the time. Folk just laugh, say she's crazy, call the dragon lady. That's her sorrow tale. I was telling this story once to a woman who had a dragon on her shoulder. And this is not really all that unusual in a Renaissance fair environment, because toy dragons or dragon puppets are sold all around, and it's a very common adornment piece. But what was unusual was when I finished telling this story, and I noticed throughout the telling of, of this story that this woman had kind of a sleepy eye, and she smiled at me with this really malevolent smile, and she reached in, and she pulled out her glass eye, <laughs> and she put it in my hand. <laughs> And walked off. <laughs> she dipped ten bases away from me and then walked back and then grabbed the eye back. And I just laughed my head off and, and sat there stunned for a while before I could begin working again. But anyway, that was a case of, you know, truth being stranger than fiction. Now, th- that story, the root of that story comes, there's a, there's a very famous fairy tale. Yeah, that's a, it's a, yeah, it's a German story, I believe. I've heard it as an Irish, but German, yeah, fine, either way. Either way, sure, you know. Oh, these things evolve in different places over time. So how did you get into storytelling? I started off, uh, I think when I was probably nine years old, I was taking a creative (laughs) writing class. Well, let's skip that part. (laughs) Skip that part? All right. Well, okay, I was a screenwriting student, okay? And I realized that in order to sell a story, I had to sell a screenplay, I had to be able to tell it. If I had to walk into a pitch meeting, I had to be able to really lay down in 10 minutes what my story was. And so I realized that storytelling was a useful skill. And to be able to tell a story fast and and cut to the chase was really important. And so I took a class in storytelling teaching techniques. Um, So I worked with a bunch of suburban storytellers. I took a class with Lynn Rubright. What surprised me that week was that I was kind of a bohemian hippie kid. And I, I didn't think that I would have a lot to connect with with uh, the people that were taking this class. But it surprised me over the course of that week intensive just how close I felt to all these people and how special I felt about what was going on there. And what really hooked in me was uh, that storytelling really lit me up and made me feel magic. And for years I had been a magician. And... I had this feeling suddenly that, that telling stories made me feel more magic than ever doing magic did, and then later on realized that it had a power of astonishment on people was greater than uh, what mere tricks were. And so I got into storytelling uh, while I was in film school, originally to sell the story. I, I started writing fairy tales uh, to procrastinate writing the larger work of full-length feature films. And so I would write my own original fantasy stories. 
And I was deeply into fantasy because as a kid, I was a Dungeons & Dragons addict. Oh, yeah, I've been there. And, and I mean, in terms of storytelling and interactive storytelling, and being what a street storyteller is, I think that my training as a 12-year-old D&D addict was probably my greatest training of all. Because what you're doing there is, as, as, as a dungeon master is you're creating a world specifically designed to please the people that you are that you invite into it. And for those, uh, we just lost in the conversation. What Joshua is saying is he's saying that as as the game creator, as the world creator, the players are pretending to be in. If you don't make the game enjoyable for the players, they're not going to come back and play with you again. Exactly. Probably making a pre-assumption that people know what the game is about. And so uh, to explain what D&D is, it's basically the, the dungeon master is a person who is the storyteller. And he describes the world wherein everybody is and then gives them a series of choices. Everyone in that game is a character or a major hero in that world. And they give a series of choices. And the exciting thing about this sort of storytelling is that unlike Let's Pretend when you were a kid, there's the possibility of failure. And unless if you make the wrong choice, you could possibly die or you're just not going to advance. Uh, your hero is not going to finish the quest. But basically the dice are used to, to just make sure that there's a, a randomness. to the Right. There's a, there's a randomness or that there's a possibility that people will succeed or fail. So, uh, so that was largely connected to to you know, uh, when I started telling stories was saying, oh, well, this has really been something that I've been doing for a long time. I just never really realized it. And how that connected in later in with the, was I started, I got into uh, the Society of Creative Anachronisms. My girlfriend then was a documentary filmmaker, and she wanted to make a documentary on the SCA. And the SCA are a... They call themselves a historical recreation group. Uh, I'm not sure how accurate that is when they're covering a 1,200-year stretch all at the same time. But what they do, it's an environment where everyone dresses in, uh, as if they were in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance, and uh, they create a world of make-believe of, say, a better time. They always say they're the Middle Ages as they would like to imagine them to be. Well, well, let's let's go on to the whole topic about being a street performer as opposed to working in a theater. Why are you performing on the street? Some performers are going to say, no, you've got this this whole experience you've built up over this years, this ability to tell stories. Why are you limiting yourself to such a small audience? I think there's power in, in a small audience. I think that there are greater reactions than massive applause and laughter. When you're able to be closer to your audience, you're able to gauge their reaction better. Furthermore, you're able to tell stories that are directly tailored towards them, and you affect them on a much deeper level if you're closer. Now, I discovered this as a magician, noticing the magicians that I respected were the close-up magicians and not the stage magicians. If you look at a magic special today of David Blaine, the reactions of the audience to a guy who's doing something right underneath their nose is far more powerful than someone who's sawing someone in half in a box from 500 feet away. And if you choose a story specifically for an individual, it's going to be an extremely powerful thing. It's not about my ego at that point in time. You know, I don't care about the roar of the crowd. I care about affecting people in as strong a way as possible. Also, I get the choice of telling the stories that I want to tell. Um, because if you're in front of a large crowd, you have to appeal to that large crowd. By performing for a, uh, a smaller group, I get to choose my audience. And 
if there's a story that affects me greatly and I want to pass that on, I can find the right person to tell it to. Now, granted, I can't tell the stories that I really want to tell all day. Occasionally, I have to appeal to whoever is in front of me. But that's also an exciting part about working. When I start a day at a Renaissance Festival, I have no idea what stories I'm going to tell. It all depends on who I run into. It's about the excitement of your audience determining what your outcome is. How is it different? I mean, you perform in front of groups. Yeah. And you've performed a lot in yeah. front of a few individuals. So how is it different? What is the difference of the of the technique, of the approach? What is the difference? In, in the context of if you're performing, I mean, I've performed on stage and also on the street. And i got to say that I prefer the street. I've certainly done well on stage. But if I am... Break down the street experience for us. All right, the street experience is, for me, the street experience is cruising around uh, with my mushroom on my head, and I, and I look around, and I scan the crowd, and I say, well, who do I want to tell a story to that's approaching? Who looks like, the one, like someone who is an imaginative soul, or someone who I really want to capture who might not be into the experience of storytelling, at least in terms of the way they perceive it? I can, from... I think that it's important to be a missionary, <laughs> to reach out to an audience that might never think that they would enjoy storytelling. Hmm. They wouldn't go to a storytelling concert. They wouldn't sit down at a storytelling show. Being a street performer, they don't have to. I walk up to them and I start engaging them. I will look at them and say, okay, what, what, what about this person tells me what story they might want to hear? If they have tattoos, fabulous. They've got a catalog on their body that I can look at and say, these symbols are important to you. If there's an interaction going on between two people that are lovers, they want to hear a love story. If it looks like it's a more of a sexual interchange that's going between them, then they want to hear something bloody. For, for children, if I, if I run into a small kid, I run into a boy, then I'll say, hey, you look like a leprechaun I once saw. You know? And then instantly that puts that, character, that kid in the face of being the leprechaun, and I turn the attention on him. You know, If you're up close, you have the power to... Turn your audience and make them part of the story. You can reach out and grab them. I can elect somebody as being uh, a knight and say they're going on a quest, and I can grab their hand and congratulate them for the job they've done. I can put them in the world up close. I can agree with people. I can clink mugs with them. Bond in different ways than one might be able to when being on stage. It's, it's more conversational. There's less of, of a third wall that exists in a theatrical setting. So that's the difference that I appreciate. Tell us what Renaissance festivals you work. Uh, the Renaissance festivals, are, oh, I work uh, uh, right now. I'm just working Arizona and Carolina, which are actually the same two shows that Angela are working. So it's kind of uh, funny that they've got because not every show has a street storyteller. We're kind of unique um, in that regard. You listen to the I just to tell me with children. This was my binky. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, there you. It's a baby. That was the baby. That's the, but this is Priscilla Howe, and you are listening to the art of storytelling with children. Don't be fooled by that baby. If you were to break down it into actual practice, like, so there's the approach. Well, first of all, you're wearing something that it distinguishes you as, as someone mm-hmm. who's unusual, so they're going to look at you. And then second of all, you approach them. How do you, do you have, like, sort of a smile every time? Do you have sort of a certain way of looking at them? Or? It depends on, on, on who is, is coming. I mean, there's some people, for instance, that will look at me from a distance and they'll just smile at me because I have a mushroom on my head. 
Other people, that kind of disturbs them. Other people will look at me and they say, I don't trust you. But they might enjoy the vibe of the fact that they don't, enjoy, they don't trust my character and therefore he's fun. So that's, that's one dynamic th- that I work. It's kind of the mischievous dynamic. That's my character. Some people need something visual. So one thing that I'll do for some people is I will, I will do some contact juggling, which is uh, rolling a, a, a crystal sphere around my body. So they'll see it glide over my hands, and they get, that gets their eyes going, and they're wondering what's going on with this guy and this crystal. And then I will say, I believe I see a moment in our future, and I'll grab hold of the crystal, and then I'll make the, and I'll make the ball vanish. Once the ball's gone, then I have a moment for him. And I say, in the future, I have a story for you. And then I'll look at them for a moment and say, okay, what is the right story for them now that they're here in front of me? And then I have precious few seconds to figure out what the right story is. And that's a great challenge to say, okay, if I don't have the right story, I'm really going to fall. But if I do have the right story, and usually I'm able to guess the right tale, that's something I become rather good at, then I have them. There is an initial moment when first approaching people, especially people that think, for instance, that, say, storytelling is something that's just for kids. So that are you... Are you ask? You're never saying to them, "Do you want to hear a story?" Oh, I do. I do. I say, "Time for a tale." Sometimes, or I say, "Who's got your tale?" I've got your tale. I so I do ask them if they want to hear a story, a lot of the time. But a lot of times, if I have if I have an in besides that, that's a means of conversation, where they suddenly end up in the middle of a story, then that's fascinating. Like if they if, say if they're wearing a, a griffin on their shoulder. And I say, do you know the tale of how that character came to be? And then the, and they'll say no. And then I say, would you like to hear it? Okay. If something that can apply directly to that person, or if I see a child off in the distance that's carrying a wooden sword, and they say, oh, you're a warrior. You remind me of Ku Cullen, Ireland's greatest hero when he was a boy. You want to hear a story about a warrior boy about your age. So I've invested them in it by, by asking them and somehow making them part of the story before it's begun. You're also using magic as an opening. As a sometimes. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. It all depends. Do you use music ever? Um, what I do do is I've got, I have bells that I carry with me. Mm-hmm. I also have a mug that functions as a clay drum. It's got an oodoo property. And so I'll sometimes make a doing sound with it that's, that's similar to a, a tabla sound. And that sometimes kind of gets people's eyes going of what was that? Sounds are very useful towards getting people's attention in the street. Um, if they're walking along and they hear a sound that they don't recognize come from somewhere, then suddenly that gets everybody's attention. Also, uh, using body language is important. The mushroom that I carry around with me is extremely useful. Uh, for If I'm working a larger crowd, I, I, I get on top of it. Okay, Then it becomes my stage. Uh, if I'm working for kids, sitting down on it is very important because that way I'm not looking down at them. I'm looking straight at them eye level. I'm an adult looking at them straight at eye level, and that's a powerful thing. I don't always sit on it. A lot of times I will just put my leg on it and, and, and brace myself, and then that creates a wall that makes me bigger than everybody else around the street. And then that draws focus to me. It creates the idea of a stage without one being there. During your street performance, do you work from tips at all? Or is it yeah, just- certainly. Usually I, I earn my living half off of what a festival pays me, and the other half on tips and merchandise sales. The thing about tips that's different from most street performing 
um, as a street magician where, I ha- where I've called a large crowd, I can directly ask for money at the end of my show. But when you're right under people's noses, you can't do that. I took a tip from my friend Craig Brower's, which is just merely to compliment the audience if anyone tips you. And so anybody that busts out a buck, Craig initially would say, there's a romantic fellow. And then everybody else wants to be a romantic fellow and will we'll put forth a buck. What I do is I wear a mug at my belt. And so during the entire time that I'm telling a story, people can see my mug is full of cash that other people must have tipped in at some point in time. And sometimes I'll gesture to my mug, but it's not as if, like, you put your money here, you know, or this is what you do. I have a ball that that keeps the money down. Sometimes I'll play with it, and it sounds like a cash register. Sometimes I'll finish a story by throwing the, the, the ball in the mug. It's a very subtle way of going, ding, the story's over, you can give me some money. But I'll do the same thing in terms of complimenting people. I'll say, there's a patron of the dream. And then when one person... Another person gives me money, and then I say, and the green grass grows all around. And then so everyone looks around and say, oh, we all should tip now. And then by that means, I'm able to get everyone in the circle to tip me. You've done this over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, when I, people say, how many shows do you do a day? And I have no idea. You know, I think that in a day, I will probably tell like 50 stories, right? And each one of those is a separate show. Each one of those is a separate little set, right? I don't know. And like I said, I don't know what, what, what stories I'm going to tell during the day. And I just keep it going. And sometimes some, sometimes I'll do more pieces in a day. Sometimes I won't. Uh, I'll do less. It, uh, it depends which people I run into. And sometimes I'll run into people that will make me do longer pieces. And sometimes it will end up that I'll run into people will I'll do what I call the short pass plays. And sometimes it's, it's, it's good to do... Uh, Sometimes the attention span is short. You can kind of get the vibe of the day in terms of, of, of what sort of stories you should go for. Um, and busy days are not always the best for me. Um, I'm one of the few performers that does really well on rain days because uh, I can find, first of all, uh, my regulars who are really my bread and butter, people that love to come to me week after week and hear a different story. So there's less people, so you can identify the regulars. I can, I can find my, the regulars faster. Also, people that have never checked me out will will do so on a day when they don't want to sit down on a wet bench or they happen to be sitting in a booth and they're not there to shop. They're there to take cover from the rain. And then I come in and then ask them if they want to hear a story, and they'll say, yeah. you know. And so they will... A lot of times on those days, people say, well, you know, I've seen you around for years, and uh, I, I, I never thought I'd enjoy what you do, but I really do. And I'm really grateful because I, this is like the best time that I've had today. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing an important lesson here, which is really interesting. I hadn't thought about before in street storytelling. I mean, I, I see the lesson of creating a space for the story to enter. I see uh-huh. a lesson of using the instrument, the, the bell or the magic, whatever it is, to draw the attention in, the focus in. I see the lesson of being in costume is really helpful as a street performer, so it's clear you're not just some guy, <laughs> but yeah. you're like the performer. Um, I see the lesson of having of, of letting the moment take you. And I want to come back to that moment because as my regular listeners know, I'm passionate about that particular subject. But letting the moment take you and going with the moment, not planning, I'm going to tell this one story, looking at that person and letting it come, come what it is. And then 
here's a new lesson I've never seen before, which is I see the lesson of being aware of the space on the street you're 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 performing in. Yeah. Um, being aware that some spaces are more constructive to performance and some are less. It seems very obvious, but I think people sometimes miss it. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things I like to do is lead people to an environment that's right for a particular story. And if I'm going to tell a story about elves, I definitely want to lead them underneath a tree. If it's raining, I'm going to go to a mermaid tale. Are a lot of your stories short? I mean, because yeah, it's it's. I I would say the majority of my stories are short, but the one the ones that end up usually end up uh, netting me a, the larger tips and end up selling CDs are the longer ones. What is long? Long to me is like eight to ten minutes. Short is a minute, two minutes. Short is I I usually go a, a short tale is is yeah is like two to four. So before performing on the street, you should have probably a good forty short stories. Right. Yeah, short. I mean, having a short story is real important because I mean, definitely a lot of people who are uncertain about this thing. Because one thing about performing on the street, you know, particularly in a venue where there's stage entertainment all around, uh, people are not really all that familiar with entertainment. So it does take some balls um, because one of the people's first reactions is, uh, "Well, okay, but if you suck, this could be really embarrassing." A lot of times, they first want to experience something short before they experience something long. That inevitably is always the case. And I rarely ever jump in with something long for someone who's a first-time customer unless I can completely recognize that they're one of my people or that they're really into fantasy. If they're really into fantasy, if they're in costume, they're wearing elf ears or, or fairy wings or something like that, then I know that I have a greater license and I can dive into that sort of thing. So is is the noise environment particularly important? I mean, I know in a performance venue, I, I am just insane. You know, I just go through all these different steps to make sure that the noise is rolled and stuff, whatever. I mean, you can, you can imagine different environments, fans, you know, uh, yeah. cafeterias, whatever it is. In an outdoor street environment, you don't necessarily have control. I mean, I could, I could imagine, especially I know at the Renaissance Festival close to us here in, in Ohio, there are some places in the festival where it's pretty loud. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you still um, do this in those environments? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it definitely it controls my walking pattern, where I go. There is a musician who plays a carillon, uh, which is an instrument you may or may not be familiar with, which is a keyboard connected to a very large series of bells. This thing will take up the space of an 18-wheel truck. So you can imagine the kind of sound it puts out. I cannot work anywhere near him. He starts to play. I have to run to the other side of the site. <laughs> and I also have to be very conscious of other performers, too. You know, I, I got into a horrible mess with uh, uh, once with uh, uh, well a, a, a mud show. You had Dave Epley on recently. It's not his mud show, but a different one. And these guys, uh, I, was, I was doing a set in the street. And I had a fairly sizable crowd on, and they went off to take their hat after their show was over, and they took their hat in the middle of the street. And I had no idea that they did this. That Monday after the show was over, one of those performers came up to me, and he said, Hey, are you bucking us? And he thought that because I had uh, been trying, I was trying to catch flow from their crowd from a 
a, a different show earlier, and they had been going longer and longer, that I was angry and I was somehow demonstrating by performing right when they were going to take their hat. And I had to explain to him, no, I'm really sorry. I just have no idea when your show ends. I don't know your show. Do you know my show? <laughs> and he said, no, of course not. And I said, okay, well then, uh, I've never seen a, a performer take their hat in the street, so I didn't mean to get in your way. And this sort of thing can happen all the time. You step on a performer's toes and, and you don't know about it. And particularly, uh, being a street performer, you you never you, it's a constant stage of experimentation. Lots of people don't like you performing that near your shop. Some of them want you to be in their shop. They love it. And you, so you just find out who your allies are and, and where the spaces are that are, are most conducive to what you do. And to find out. By, by find out, you mean you just got to do it. Just got to do it and experiment. But I mean, there's certain, certain things you can do. You say it's obvious where you say, okay, that performer's working over there. You, you just got to be conscious and respectful. Yeah, a lot of it is experimentation well, and touch and go. My, my regular listeners know that I'm, really, I'm passionate about this thing, and you touched on it earlier, and I just want to talk about that for a moment for those who aren't convinced yet. <laughs> right. Um, in that few seconds, okay, you did your piece of dazzle, you created the space, or you did the opening, and it's time to pick the story. Right. Talk about that just for a moment. What is the value in not knowing what story you're going to tell before that moment? What is the value in it? Yeah, what is the value of not knowing the story for that moment? Why, okay, why not well, have every single story planned out for the whole day? Oh, okay. Say, all right, say I had a list of stories that I was going to tell, and in that order. All right, and I, I say, in my mind, uh, the first story that I'm going to tell is about a fairy princess, and the first guy I run into is a biker. It's not going to work, right? Right. You know, I could wait and, a, a, until the right little girl comes along. That might be a few minutes. And in that time, I'm losing things. And furthermore, uh, it, it's exciting to see what's coming. It's exciting to not know uh, what's coming up. Um, people have, have, have asked me, when are you going to graduate to a stage? You're clearly good enough. I see the crowd loving you. Why, why don't you want to work a stage? And the reason why is because I don't want to do the same stuff all the time. I found myself when I was doing uh, stage performances that I ended up doing the same stories all the time. I got bored. Um, and I found that, and, uh, and also, I, my tips weren't, 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 even, weren't as good as when I was on the street. <laughs> you made more money on the street. I did. It, 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 it bothered, there was, there was one time when I was, I, I was changing characters in the middle of the day. I would do my fairy ambassador character on the street, and then I would do my Arabic sorcerer character with this Arabian night show that I was in. Inevitably, we would always get more singles in the Arabian night show, and I'd be getting more fives on the street. And it pissed off my partners, because they were like saying, well, why are you devoting better work? <laughs> towards your work on the street, you should be focused on the stage. And I said, well, that's how you see it. But I'm not intentionally doing anything. It's just, it just it's a mark of my own enthusiasm, really. Um, if, if, I think that if you're going to have some conviction in telling stories, the stories that make you feel good or the, the performing situations that make you feel good are going to make the audience feel good. Right? I think, to me, the exciting potential here is not even in getting the fives. Okay? The exciting potential here is as people who are in business, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to the artistic standpoint. No. I don't know where you stand on this argument that some people have with, <laughs> with the business thing. But as people, as business people who are also storytellers, we, need, we understand that our relationship is the valuable part of our art. 
Right. So, so you, you said it, actually. You said it. My regulars. You get that. Yeah. To me, it's about if I can tell a story and I can hand someone a card and they can sign up to my storytelling e-course, then I have gold. Right. Because I have a relationship with them and eventually they're going to come to a workshop, they're going to do a CD, they're going to do something else. They're going to build a relationship. But if I just get $5 from them, to me that's actually the low end. No, market. it is a low end. But what I was saying is, is that in terms of the effect that I, I it, it's, it's a measure. Just the whole, the whole. Oh, no, no, thing. I wasn't putting down your work. I'm just, I'm just thinking about working the street and the potential of it. Right. You know? Well, if, if we as storytellers, not just you and me, right, everybody listening to this call tried street storytelling and saw it as a as a way of reaching out to the community who's never really experienced storytelling. That's just very exciting to me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Every day I'm conscious of how many people I've turned on to storytelling that were never really aware of it as an art form. You know, a lot of people, when I say I'm going to tell them a story, they don't believe that I'm going to do it. Or they think, they, I'm serious. I put my mushroom down and they, and they look at me funny, like, y- y- you must have been kidding. And then people also are surprised sometimes that they enjoyed it. I'm able to convince them that they should sit down for the experience. Now, I know we have people on the call. I want to open it up to them. But before I open it up to them, I just... Okay, I'm gonna think, I'm gonna I'm gonna describe four people to you, and I want you to tell me the name of the story you're gonna tell them. <laughs> okay, is that okay. all right? Can I do that? Yeah, you can do that. So, That's a fun exercise. I'm just curious, you know, because I don't know what I would do with some people. <laughs> so I'll pick four people that I really don't know. So there won't be any kids, because um, I know every child, and I'm sure some people are gonna be like, "Dang it, this is children's storytelling." But I'm sorry, guys, I'm just gonna talk about the adults. So you got a guy in a business suit. <laughs> Uh-huh. He walks in. He's at the fair, so he's into doing stuff, you know. He's but he's got the suit and tie on. Okay. <laughs> he's got the the cigarette thing going on with the two fingers, you know, that tells you that he might smoke. Um, and and he's got the nice shoes on, and it's the grass is muddy, and he's walking through anyway. And mm-hmm. he stops and listens to you, <laughs> so he doesn't just ignore you. And he's going to listen to your story. What story would you tell him? I'd probably end up telling him a vampire story. Because it's scary. Everybody associates with scary. That's scary. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, not, not necessarily, but you know, or, or uh, I might tell tell him a warrior story because he's a guy who's wanting to be on top. You okay. Know? A, a mom with three kids in tow who are like, like you know, the kids are like screaming a little bit, like they're okay. tired. What gender are the children? Um, two girls and a boy. And the boy. Two girls quiet. and a boy. The, the okay. The girls sleep on the mom's shoulder, and the two girls are are there. Okay. All right, it it depends. If the boy if the boy's asleep, yeah, then then I'll just let him sleep and I'll tell the girls a fairy tale. Yeah. And I'll tell them something with fairies. And I will start off by probably convincing them that they are young and growing and have the power to make things grow and do some magic with flowers and then use that as a lead-in to oh, start about that's believing good. in fairies. That's good. What about like somebody with a Budweiser cap and they're walking through and they're kind of like look like they drive trucks for a living maybe? Right. Um, and they got that 50-yard squint, but they stop and look at you and listen to you anyway. Okay. Uh, I would... <laughs> like the beer in one hand. I would tell them a story about a satyr, you know. Uh, that would appeal to their sense of, of walking around in our door bar, uh, bar and getting bombed or, or a centaur. I have uh, a story called The Fruit of the Fairy that's a, a piece, a magic piece that I do with sponge balls that's about fruits of temptation. And... That's usually like my 45 automatic for dealing with drunk people. Oh, that's interesting. And so what, what about that? Because I can't repeat the magic part of you, so give me the core va- of the values of that piece so I can create a story that fits those values. Okay. What that fairy tale is about uh-huh. 
is a woman that goes off uh, into a forest. She's told only to pick fruits on the outside lane, but then she hears the voices of the fairies calling her down the path, and she starts eating more and more fruits. You know, <laughs> and this can be you know attributed to infidelity. Okay. Right. Right. Then when she comes home, she's dying for more fruits, and the man's a little angry. So he goes off on the path, and he goes looking for the fairies. And the fairies offer him fruits of temptation. Now, what's interesting about this story is what I do is I I do it with a couple generally. And I start off by flirting with the guy's girlfriend, uh, which is very dangerous. (laughs) What I do is then when I... I, I turn it back on the guy, and then I start flirting with him. And then it makes it somehow okay that I was flirting with his girlfriend because now he understands the double entendre with the fairies and all that. I've got his hand off, and it's getting weird. you know. And only in a few situations has the guy been so homophobic that he's like, let go of my hand and released it. You, know? but you have enough experience with that so that you know the line you're walking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, can, I, I mean, a lot of it is, is looking in the person's eyes and judging what you can get away with. You know, and the more I push it... So basically, the story you're talking about is a story where you're relating physically to the person right? in some way, so it's triggering. That's really interesting. Okay, I want to open it up, because I know we have a couple people on the call, and I want to open up to questions or comments. All right, I do have some feedback. This is Angela Hunt, the painted lady. Hey, Angela, tell us... Hey, Angela, glad you could make it. Uh, What's your website? It is www.myspace.com forward slash I am the painted lady. And everything Joshua has said is very true. I could see pictures in my mind of situations where I've experienced the same. And I wanted to add what he's been saying and refine it that um, it's the unexpected where they're walking past you and all of a sudden their eyes hit you and they realize that you are outside their normal realm of experience. And they make a choice to allow you to join them. And they join you outside of their normal reality. So you can tell them a story that otherwise they might have passed by. But all of a sudden, you have turned their world on its ear. You told them the frog prince story wasn't so accurate. It was an injured frog a nice princess took care of, and then a prince married her. Because she was kind, the frog still lives in the well. And now they're they're listening and they're willing to engage you and give you that chance to go into the magic you do or the visual effect where on my dress they paint and they change the stories we tell. So there's that unexpected. And, I, and Joshua has said that over and over. It's all of a sudden something is different and their ears are completely open and their eyes are on you and they give you that opportunity to interact. Well said. Yeah. So... That's my experience, and, and he, he kept hitting it over and over, and I kept thinking, yes, that's what it is, is where they leave their preconceived notions behind and Angela, allow you to change them. Angela, what, uh, what Renaissance festivals do you perform at? I perform in Arizona and Carolina. I sit on the ground, and people approach me, and they paint on my dress. They give me two or three words. If there's more painters, then it's more words, and that goes into the story we create together. So as he said, as they walk up, you're looking at them. You have an idea. If they have tattoos, it's a blessing, as he said. They walk up, and there's their body types, their body language, the interactions they're having with the people they're with. That gives you a lead-in as to where to go. And I'm nodding as he identified what stories he would tell to those people that 
the man in the business suit, I would I would turn him into a knight and I would turn the king into a fool because he's a businessman and of course he knows his boss is a fool. Every businessman knows his boss is a fool. So I'm going back to the archetypes with it and letting their type tell me what archetype to go to and then in the painting they may change it. You're nicer to yuppies than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I want their tips more. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the tips do influence. Uh, if it's a, a mother or a grandmother with bad knees who's sitting down, I'll tell a story about the person with the most heart, and it'll be someone in their age group. And a lot of times when you when you use the word heart in a story, like like you said, with compliments, at the end of a story, if there's something heartwarming or complimental, then everyone wants to give back to you because you've reminded them to have heart. And not a lot in this society does that. Mm. So it gives you that opening to give them that magical moment and that feeling that I've just found someone outside of my normal experience who is magical, who cares. So that's what I what I had thought-wise there from the conversation and the questions that were being asked. So, Well, thanks, Angela. Thank you. Thank you. I know someone else is on the call, so I want to give them a 10 seconds here to put their question or comment in. Hello. Hey, there you are, Lisa. Um, This is really exciting. I want to do in- this. Introduce yourself to Joshua. I- I'm, I'm sorry. I'm Lisa Holmes. I'm a friend of Eric's, and um, we storytell together. Okay. And we are having a festival coming up a street fair at Yellow Spring, in Yellow Springs, and I told him, I just emailed him, and I said, you know, I really want to do this. And he's like, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, this is so me, but I've never done it before. He says, well, listen to my podcast. So do you have any advice for first-time people that would be interested in doing this? I storytell. And also, do you have to go to them? Can they come to you? Angela works. Who was just on the phone? Own, they they do come to her because she she's she's created a vehicle whereby she is a spectacle in a place, uh, and that is her dress that people paint on, and then the illustration, and then from what they paint, she spins a story. So I mean, one way is to create an area that is unique to a character, uh, and that will create interest as they pass by. I found that I work far better as a bobber in the water, so to speak. I'm just kind of bobbing around and getting under people's noses and making a comment. But that can be somewhat frightening. Uh, If you are able to create a spectacle or or, or carve a space in a way that invites people uh, to come and listen, then that's great. Then, you know, there's no wrong way to do it. Uh, certainly when you're going fishing, you know, you can either sit on the bank or you can troll, right? Right, right. And uh, that's an analogy that my friend Craig Brewers, who really taught me how to work the street, is is, is that what we're, out, what we're out doing is fishing. And when I would run into him in the middle of the street in the middle of the day, he would say, our lines are tangled, and we would turn around and face the other way and go off. But I don't think there's a wrong way to do it, really. Okay. And certainly people are more comfortable approaching something that's fixed than uh, than something that's moving. Right. Um, I think starting out, I, I would be more comfortable in my like in a space, but then I can draw people into my space. I think that's that would be something that I would be a lot more comfortable with. I don't know if I could do it going out. Uh huh. You know, like what you do. I think 
I would have to get more confidence or more build and make sure this is something I should be doing. Yeah. Joshua, do you have any confidence-building exercises or suggestions? You know, I mean, my best confidence-building exercises, I think, is, is kind of listening to music in the morning and stretching. You know, I do yoga every day, and uh, and that kind of gets me I usually relaxed before I go out. Uh, but isn't going out and work. doing it confidence-building? I mean, Sure. I mean, of course. I mean, you're, I'm, I'm certainly much more confident doing it now than when I first started. Uh, a lot of people notice that uh, I, sometimes I, I I talk too fast when I first started doing it, you know, right. and I'm, I'm talking too fast probably now because I'm not used to being interviewed, right? Your confidence reads in people's faces, so I yeah I don't know of any way of of building up confidence other than to just picking up the bat and doing it. Now, when you do this, do you always do it at the Renaissance and at fairy festivals, or do you just take any festivals? Um, I have done it at other di- at other different types of shows. Um, I, I have done it on the naked street before. I haven't wow. done it that often. Uh, wow. But you've got to be in in a city that's conducive to that kind of weirdness. I, I worked in New Orleans for a while doing it. Yeah, New Orleans is a perfect place. Yeah, I did the same thing though in terms of wearing a costume. I would I would always wear like a nutty top hat and tailcoat, and I would kind of spin in the street until that attracted people's attention and then snap a comment right on somebody's nose for a right story or something. I think Joshua and I would agree. This is Angela. I wanted to just add in for the confidence. Remember, they want to get a good story from you, so you shouldn't be nervous about giving them one. You should remember that. And I know that that was something that, you know, it's an interview, so it's hard to get that. And I'm going, I know Joshua would say this right now. Well, thanks for backing up. That's why I added it in is, Remember that the person you're dealing with wants the best out of you, and they don't want you to be nervous. Mm-hmm. They want right. the best out of you, and if you have that in focus, they want the best out of me, and they they don't want me to be nervous. Then it's a lot easier to be confident. And I, with that, I'll go back off. Wait, wait, Angela. Before you uh-huh. go, uh, and Joshua, I just want to ask you both: in terms of building a crowd as mm-hmm. a street performer, I mean, I, we've talked a lot about how to get the first couple people. Yeah, Joshua, you said you normally work with just a few people, but when you feel like it, when you feel like gathering, and you talked a little while ago about gathering a crowd at one point, when you're gathering a crowd, are you projecting just to the people who are listening to you, or are you trying to reach with your voice people who are walking beyond the edge? I try and, if if someone stops for a moment, Hmm. you know, I I will start small and sometimes fan out. If if, If I start a story, um... I will sometimes, if I see other people watching, I'll move back and give a little bit more space to it. I'll stand up on my mushroom. Height is a great thing for uh, for building a crowd. Um, I, body language, too. Yeah, certainly body language as well. Volume. Sometimes it's not to my advantage to build a crowd. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that there are certain stories that are bad to come in the middle of. Um, and... So in those instances, I don't want to build a crowd, um, but a cluster is nice. Yeah, just standing back, projecting a greater a, a great amount of energy, eye contact. Certainly, if someone catch you, starts listening to what you say, then give them your eye, give them a smile, and continue to monitor that. Monitoring people's eye contact is a great way towards keeping their focus. In some cases, 
your arm movement. You use the spheres, and I use arm movement because I have the bright colors up and down my arms. And that right. arm movement, their their eyes keep following it, and you can tell if they're following the story. Yeah, and if they're not, that's another thing, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you're going to run to a group of people where uh, there's one person who just can't handle the fact that there's someone who they don't know is talking to them up close, and they'll check out. You have to make a choice then. Are you going to continue to monitor that person and hope to bring them back? Or are you going to just look at the people of the group that are maintaining focus? And it it depends. You really just have to make a call right then and there. Um, I think sometimes sometimes it's critical to bring them in and sometimes it's critical to let them go if they're... Yeah what type of unease they have, if it's the unease of you haven't put them in the story yet or if it's the unease of, oh, my God, someone I don't know and that's dressed funny is talking to me. Yeah, you have to make them feel comfortable. And sometimes you do have to be intrusive and realize that they will be comfortable eventually. Lisa, uh, you, had a, you had a comment? Oh, I just say sometimes you just get so focused on that one person that's not focused on you that sometimes you forget what you're doing. <laughs> but that's just... You know. Yeah, that that can happen sometimes. I mean, there, there there are times when you lose your thread. I have had a couple of humiliating situations where, you know, I've, I've been telling a story and uh, suddenly I find myself in the middle of another one because I went on autopilot, you know, and, I, and those, those humiliating cases I've even just, like, picked up my mushroom and run, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you can do that. But you can't do that in a the theater. You can do it in the street, you know? Right. It's perfectly legal, right? <laughs> I, I just went to see um, Mary Hamilton, Lisa saw it too, um, at the, she did 11 Cinderella's. So it was 11 different, the 11 different versions of Cinderella, one after the other from the beginning to the end of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. So the story of Cinderella is divided up 11 times, you understand? Yeah. Go version one, the beginning, version two, the part after the beginning, version three, the middle, you know what I mean? And it was it was so amazing. And it was like listening to a different story every couple paragraphs, but it also had a sort of depth to it. This is Ruth Hill. I'm Brother Blue. Poor fool, I know nothing. And you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. She's wise. She knows everything. I'm afraid that our time is running out. Do you have an offer for us? Sure. Uh, I guess since the topic today is uh, is street storytelling, if you want to find out more about it, you can go to my website at ravenstory.com and uh, shoot me an email at joshua at ravenstory.com. I've got uh, uh, CDs there of, uh, of stories, of, of short examples of the sort of thing that I might be doing on the street, and I'd like to continue a dialogue with anybody that's out there that's interested in this topic. That's my offer. And I just want to put it out there that I have right now an e-course on storytelling. I call it The Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. I'm just putting it up in the next in the next week or so. And I hope that uh, you will sign up for it and, and give me some feedback on what you think if it was helpful or not. So, do you have any last words for the international storytelling movement? I think that I just wanted wanted to to point out that uh th- this may seem like a wild and and funky way of telling stories uh working without a net or without a venue 
but it's really as old-fashioned as storytelling is. I think that it's it's very close to the same vibe that you get when you're telling stories around a fire to friends, and that this is a way to carry that out to the public at large and uh, introduce people previously that had not been turned on to storytelling uh, to what a wonderful thing it can be and uh, sort of a, a, a missionary ticket to the imagination. And I think I just want... I think the thing I really get out of this this call that I, I didn't think I would get out of this call mm-hmm. is, that, is I think that, that what you've outlined for us is a mechanism where we as storytellers can bring more people into the storytelling movement. Yeah. And, and I really think that right now in the storytelling movement, we're kind of caught in this cycle of storytelling is this wonderful thing and it's in this environment that's kind of, you know, you have to go somewhere out of the way to get to. And I'm right. really, I'm really into this model of you know bring it to the people sort of thing. And and I think that there are places where we as storytellers can go to practice our art, maybe even earn some tips, practice our art, and expose new audience of storytelling, and at the least build a relationship with that audience. Whether it's just handing them your card when you finish the performance, you know, so they can go check out your website or or do the or connect to you. Uh, through an email course or whether it's uh, handing them a card about this podcast <laughs> or or some other way of continuing the relationship. And street storytelling can be that that beginning, mm-hmm. that, that entrance. Um, or it can be as simple as they sign up their email. If you want to see me in a performance space, in a theater next month when I'm performing, you know, I'm here on the street corner during lunch, every day from 12 to 1, but in three weeks I'll be at this theater performance. Sure, it's a great method of recruitment. Yeah, and, and you just have that clipboard, and you hand them the clipboard, and they write their email twice, by the way, if you've ever done that, twice. You open up the laptop, and they write the email in even better. Whatever it is, street storytelling can be a method for us to reach out to those who don't even know we exist. And in a country, the United States is a country of over 300 million people, there are a lot of people out there who don't know he exists. <laughs> it's true. And we could be so much bigger, and we are big right now. We are stretching our boots, and we are growing every day. But we could be so much bigger. And I'm really excited about this, Joshua. And I, maybe Lisa and me, maybe we'll encourage each other to try out a few of these techniques we discussed at the upcoming festival. <laughs> Excellent. Well, good luck. Well, even though... Brother Blue, who is an excellent street storytelling, and I'm I'm looking at him right now. He's he has um he wears these blue outfits when he goes street storytelling. They're all blue with ribbons, and and then he's got this banner he wears over one shoulder that hangs down. That has he's got various different banners depending on what he feels like, and he's got the sort of uh, hippie hat on, and he's got the boots with the long long boots and some stuff hanging off his knees, and he just does not look like a normal person. And he hangs out in Cambridge Square and tells a story. Even though Brother Blue stops what he's doing and looks up at the sky in astonishment. This is Eric Wolf, and you have been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. 
This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening. As my granddad told